So I thought it would be really nice to dig a little bit deeper into one piece of the Torah portion, the Shabbat, and do a more traditional text study. So in each of your prayer books, in your handouts, there's also a white sheet of paper that says Shabbat Emor text study sheet. This way, you'll have the texts in front of you as we discuss them, and you won't have to just listen to me read them. You'll be able to kind of move your eye around the page. We are in Parshat Emor, which is in the middle of the book of Leviticus, the third book of the five books of Moses. And the majority of this Torah portion focuses on priests and on special laws that, are, that really apply only to priests, only to the sons and the descendants of Aaron, of Moses' brother. And as a reminder, a priest's main job is to oversee the temple in Jerusalem and specifically to offer sacrifices to God at the altar in the temple. So even though, you know, you may have been a lovely Israelite family that lived outside of Jerusalem and had a farm, when you brought your animals or your wheat or your barley, whatever you were bringing to sacrifice, you would hand it to the priest. And it was the priest's job to, with all of the correct details and logistics and blessings, it was the priest's job to actually offer it up at the altar and to make sure that the temple cult, that the whole religious framework was constantly kept and maintained. So as a result, the Torah is really careful to maintain the ritual status of the priest. He cannot come into contact with anything that will make him impure, that will make him ritually impure, because it means that temporarily he can't enter the temple and perform his duties. So that brings us to the first text from our Torah portion, which is Leviticus 21, verse 1. God said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, None shall defile himself for any dead person among his kin, except for the relatives that are closest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, and his brother, also for a virgin sister, close to him because she is not yet married. For her he may defile himself, but he shall not defile himself as a kinsman by marriage, and so profane himself. So, just so we're all on the same page, the Torah considers a dead body to be the most defiling of substances in the world. And so it wants to make sure that all of the priests never touch a corpse. But it also offers a few exceptions to this rule. In Hebrew, it literally says, im lesero hakarov. If there is a close family member of the flesh, a close person of the flesh, in this case a parent, a child, or a sibling, then it's worth it for him to become impure in order to be able to bury them. You know, today we have funeral homes and cemetery personnel but in the time of the Torah, family members probably themselves prepared the bodies of their loved ones and themselves actually dug the grave and physically laid their loved ones' bodies down, right? It was a much more personal and touch-oriented type of exercise, right? So the text is trying to find this really delicate balance in life. On the one hand, a priest's main function in the community is to maintain a critical balance with the relationship to God, 
to make sure that sacrifice happens perfectly and regularly between the Israelite people and Adonai. But at the same time, a priest is also a human being like any other, with a family that he cares about. And so there are certain times when he should put his obligation to his family and his own emotional needs before that of the communities. Today we would call it work-life family balance, right? But in this case, the work-life family balance is when is a priest allowed to become impure and miss being in the temple because his family is more important? So a challenge that you may have already noticed when reading the text is that if you read closely, there's one critical member of his family that seems to be missing from the list. His wife, right? So it lists everyone who's blood, a blood close relative of his, but it doesn't say that he can make an exception to bury his spouse. And this seems to be cruel to me. While they're not blood relatives, they're certainly close, and it's hard for me to imagine that the Torah would want a husband not to be able to touch and honor and bury his wife when she's passed away. The rabbis, the next generation, the next layer of those who tried to interpret and bring the Torah into contemporary life, really struggled with this aspect of the text. And they never ever come out and directly criticize Torah. That's not how they work. Instead, they always find little ways to make arguments against the Levitical text. And I gave you three different examples on the text sheet of how they wrestle with this issue. So the first should be uh, somewhat familiar. It's from the beginning of Genesis, from the end of the creation story. And so a man leaves his father and his mother, and literally, devak b'ishto, he clings, he's glued, he clings to his wife, v'hayu levasar echad, and they become as one flesh. Right? So there are a lot of interpretations about what that means, but we'll set that aside for a minute. What the rabbis are interested in is that if you take it literally, that they become one flesh, and the language in Leviticus uses the same exact language, that the husband, the priest, has to take care of people who are of his flesh. So the rabbis argue that Leviticus means his wife, because Genesis says that they're of the same flesh, that they're blood relatives, in other words. Right? So when it says, im lesero hakarov, to close blood relatives, the rabbis argue that because of Genesis, that automatically includes a spouse. So that's their first argument. A little bit of a stretch, but interesting. Their second is from the Mishnah, which is a second century, 200 CE text. When she is married, the husband exceeds the father in responsibility. He is liable to maintain her, to ransom her, and to bury her. Rabbi Judah adds, even the poorest man in Israel should not hire fewer than two flutes and one professional wailing woman. So, first of all, this is actually a language that's often in a ketubah, in a wedding contract, which is that a husband, once his wife comes into his household, it's a little outdated, right? But there are three things that he's required to do, that he's obligated to do, all husbands for all wives. The first is maintain her, right? You can, that's broadly defined, but make sure that she's comfortable, 
right, that she is physically comfortable, emotionally comfortable, to ransom her, which is something that doesn't come off, you know, come up often anymore. But at the time, people were often kidnapped and ransomed, right? A kind of pirate-like idea. And there were often poor families, poor men, who would choose, you know, I like her, but I don't know if it's worth the hundred shekels to ransom her. And so the Ketubah text would make sure that he was required to get her back. And so he, right, the text wants to make sure that he ransoms her back if she's kidnapped. And the last thing, the trio of responsibilities, is that he has to bury her. So in other words, they, they get around the law by saying any husband, priest or non-priest, has the obligation to bury his wife. It's part of the marriage contract. It's part of the commitment that they make to each other. And lastly, I just wanted you to see this very, I thought, cool note, which is that when we think about, you know, how much money should we spend on funerals? How should we honor the person? Rabbi Judah has a really clear idea that the minimum that a funeral should have is two flutes, in other words, some kind of music. And they used to hire professional mourners women who would sit at the funeral and cry, literally, um, like, yalala, right? They would cry at the funeral to make sure that there was a loud noise marking the sadness of the death. Okay, so you have Genesis, you have Mishnah. And lastly, you have the Babylonian Talmud, which is a primarily 5th century text. Our rabbis taught, for all nearest of kin mentioned in the priest's section, for whom a priest is to defile himself. A mourner is to observe formal mourning, namely, for his wife, father or mother, brother or sister, son or daughter, and to these they added his brother or single sister from the same mother, as well as his married sister, be it from the same mother or the same father. And just as he observes formal mourning for these, he likewise observes formal mourning for their relatives in the second degree. This is Rabbi Akiba's ruling. So in other words, when they're reading our Torah portion, that's what they mean by the priest section, when they read Parshat Imor, they automatically interpret that that list should include his wife. They don't even give a reason. They just say this is the acceptable list of people that he should mourn for. And then they further expand it to half-siblings, to siblings whether or not they are married, and even to in-laws. Right? Second-degree relatives like a mother-in-law, a father-in-law, a nephew, a niece, other people that he's close to in his family. So looking at these three different ways in which the rabbis made sure that we read the Torah portion as including not just blood relatives but also a spouse, what do we take away from this text? I think the first thing is to notice that the Torah is trying to balance the needs of the community with the needs of the individual. It recognizes that even the leaders of the community, even people as important as priests, need to step away to be there for their families and for themselves sometimes, and the community should give them that space. Secondly, the rabbis value the sacredness and emotional depth of marriage. They wanted to make sure that a husband could honor his wife and to take the time he needs to mourn his spouse, regardless of, really, regardless of flesh, regardless of blood. It's as much about the emotional connection that they have. 
Thirdly, the rabbis emphasize the importance of fully mourning a lost loved one. Jewish tradition takes the mourning process very seriously. They don't think anything, whether professional or otherwise, should get in the way of taking time to remember the person and to gain strength from family and friends that surround them. And lastly, a more meta-learning is that Jewish law is constantly evolving. The rabbis found a way to interpret this law so that it really met their moral and ethical values, so that it included the priest's wife among those members of the family that he could personally bury. Although it is not included in the Torah, they felt strongly enough to be creative and to add it hundreds of years later. So with that, uh, I'll say Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>